Now, in the book of Hebrews, uh, we've been talking about specifically Jesus and how great Jesus is. That's been the main, the main topic in all of this, is this how great Jesus is. Throughout the weeks, we've been building on how great Jesus is by unpacking different facets of who he is and how amazing he is and this plan of God that centers itself in and around Jesus. Now today what we're going to do, and I need to explain it to you, we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus is greater than Moses. Now for some of us, we're gonna be, the, the immediate thought is just, well, I'm going to check out because I already know Jesus is greater than Moses. You don't have to go into everything, but the, stay with me. At the beginning of the week, I didn't even know where I was going to go because I'm like, yeah, no, duh, Jesus is greater than Moses. Why don't I just say that? We'll pray and we'll go home. But the more I begin to study it and the more I begin to understand and, and even just unpack for myself the magnitude of what the writer of Hebrews is saying, I started to get really excited. See, I think what you have to do is you have to transport yourself back into their world as Jewish people. These are Jewish Christians, and the idea of Moses was not that he was just anybody. He was the great prophet. He was the greatest in magnitude. He was, in fact, they would have viewed him as the greatest man of all history. The way they saw him, in fact, and this is important to kind of our flow of the idea of Hebrews is, is that not only was Jesus greater than the angels, we talked about that, but they viewed Moses as greater than the angels. So in some people's heads, they're thinking, yeah, Moses is great, Jesus is great. And, And to not kind of bag on them a little bit, the thing you have to understand about this is that when they saw who Moses was, they saw a guy who the hand of God preserved him as a little infant, and then even at the very end in Deuteronomy 34, God cared for him so greatly that without anybody around, it says that God went and buried him. That's crazy. And in between those two points were some of the most incredible signs and wonders and miracles that this world has ever seen. It was loaded with his journey to go and talk to Pharaoh and and release his people. He took his people out into the desert. And when he got them out there, obviously they weren't exactly the best audience to travel with. In the midst of their travels, though, he carried them through all kinds of different facets of life, even bringing them up to the very edge of the promised land. This guy, Moses, was the one who God gave the law, who wrote Scripture, They revered him greatly. He was Moses. And the idea in the Old Testament is just, it was Moses, Moses, Moses. That's how they viewed him with such reverence and respect. Go with me in your Bibles, and I will go there. And if you got one like me, I'll even tell you what page it's on. But go with me to Deuteronomy 34. Let me just kind of unpack for you how they would have seen him. Because this is at the very end of his life. And this is how they couched him. Deuteronomy 34. And these are the last three verses of Deuteronomy, verse, starting in verse 10. Now listen to this. It's on page 121 if you've got this Bible. All right? I say that because I remember when I first had a Bible in my hand, I didn't know where First Thessalonians was. And so, verse 10. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel, like Moses, whom the Lord knew, look at this, face to face. 
None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants to all his land and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. They reverenced him. Now what he's doing off of this and building his case for who Moses is is you've got to remember is that this group of people was just downtrodden. They were beaten up. And, and the tendency amongst all of us, I don't care who you are, is that when life hits us hard, and I know there's some of you in here that life has hit hard, our tendency is to revert back into what we know. And so for this group of people, their tendency was to go back into Judaism. That's what was going on. And what he's doing is, is if you think that Moses is great, oh, you got to consider Jesus. No matter how great you think Moses is, Jesus is of a magnitude greater that we can't even express. He's going to try to get them, and here's going to be his command, is consider Jesus. Look at verse 1. You can see this. Look at this command in here. Uh, back to, to Hebrews 3. Look at verse 1. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. That's going to be the rhythm of it. Consider Jesus. Now, in order to understand this command, we've got to look at the very first word. Look at the very first word. What's the first word? Therefore. What do we ask? Good. What's the therefore, therefore? The therefore is there to point us back into what's already been written. That's what he's doing here. In order to unpack this idea of this command to consider Jesus, he wants to take us back. And on the basis of everything I've just said up to this point, I'm going to load this into this so you understand. I want you to take account of that. So what has he just said? Well, if you remember right, in verse 9, it talks about this idea that Jesus was made just a little bit lower than the angels. It calls him the salvation pioneer. It says he is a sanctifier. He's one of our brothers it says that he destroyed Satan and death. He did what we could not do. He was the deliverer that stood against the fall, diminishing all that had happened against humanity and paving the way now so that all of us in this room that know Jesus can actually live as humanity was designed to live. He's bringing that in and saying, look, therefore, holy brothers, I want you to consider Jesus. You don't have to look anywhere else. That's our problem sometimes. When trouble hits, we look in all these different places and the writer of Hebrews just is saying to them, listen, just consider Jesus. I know what's going on in your life. I get that there's people around you that are being persecuted, even some of them are dying. But don't fall back into what you know. Push forward into who he is, Jesus. Would you just consider Jesus? This word consider is important. It, it has within it the idea of the mind. And the idea is, is that you are to diligently use the mind and allow it and to, to sit there and think about Jesus until it begins to unfold in your mind who he is. You're supposed to take time and energy and pour into it. You're supposed to look at it intently. Even in this word, it kind of has the idea of how we're supposed to do it. The how has to do with this idea of a desire. It means that it's something that I'm supposed to yearn after. That's inside of this word. Inside of this word also is the idea of meditation. I'm supposed to concentrate on it. I'm supposed to have discipline. He's going to talk about it later in, in Hebrews 12 like an athlete. But here's the big key. Built into this word, it's talking about consider, is the idea that it just takes 
time. And oh, for a culture like ours that does not have time. I think that one of the main reasons that the church is so stagnant is we have lost the time to just consider Jesus. We're busy doing things. We're busy helping moms that are, you know, have foster kids and adoptive kids. We're, we're busy going to Mexico and we're busy doing trunk or treat. We're busy, busy, busy. And in the midst of it, the goal of the Christian life is not to be busy. The goal of the Christian life is to keep Christ front and center in who we are. And he's just saying to this group of people, I get what's going on. Just consider Jesus. He couches it in two words. Look down in verse one. He couches it with one, this idea of an apostle. Jesus is an apostle. We'll talk about that. And the second way that he frames it out is that Jesus is the high priest. Now those two words, it's important, are really only used in reference to Jesus inside of Hebrews. They're unique. Apostle is used only once in the text and 12 different times this idea of the high priest is going to come to bear when it's expressing who Jesus is. When it talks about this idea of an apostle, and this is important, it means that he was a sent one. He was the greatest of all the sent ones. He's going he's to compare him in just a little bit to Moses. He is the greatest of all sent ones. He's the one that the Father sent into the world uniquely, not just with a message, but Jesus is the message. He was the word that was spoken about back in Hebrews 1. He's the apostle of all apostles. He was the perfect communication of God. He even said, look, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When you saw and you heard Jesus, you saw and you heard God. He was saying as the sent one, he is unique unlike any other person that's ever been on this planet. But not only was he the apostle, the other word he uses there is he was the high priest. Because he was perfectly human and because he was perfectly divine, he was God, He now knows both man and God in a distinct way and he's able to speak to men on behalf of God and he's able to intercede to God on behalf of men. He's the only person whom man comes to God and God to man. In fact, some of you might have grown up Catholic, the word pontifex. It's this word that means priest. But actually that word, if if you pull it apart and you look at it, it actually means bridge builder. The coolest thing about Jesus when we talk about the high priest idea is that he is the bridge builder between God and man. He even said there, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and as the bridge builder, nobody goes to the Father but through me. Moses is laying this down, trying to help them understand that he's not only the sent one with all of God's power, with all of God's communication, But he's the one who takes God and man and brings them together. This is why when we talk about Jesus being exalted, that's what we mean. And he's looking at these people saying, this is what I want you to consider. Moses is nowhere like this guy. He is unique. He is powerful. He is other. And he knew in order for people, as they're going through these difficult times to face them, they had to see Jesus accurately. This week I went to visit somebody. I finally was able to get back and get over being sick and I went to the hospital and I'm sitting there and I'm talking with somebody that's in the hospital right now and 
I said, what are you learning right now? He goes, wow. How big Jesus is. See, either in our times of trouble, Jesus is going to become enlarged in who he is or he's going to become shrunk. And what he's saying is, is don't allow Jesus to be shrunk. Keep him at the forefront. Consider Jesus as his command. Now, having challenged his readers to do this, look down into verse three. He's, now what he's going to do is, is he's, okay, so I've, I've got across the idea that you're going to fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the apostle and high priest. And he's going to now just unambiguously, he's going to address Jesus' superiority over Moses, showing that, that while Moses was faithful, that's verse 2, Jesus was greater in his work. Now what he's going to grab is this idea of a house. And he's going to talk about house. Now let me, let me just explain house so that we can get the full force of what he's talking about. The idea of a house at that time is not like the house we live in today as a nuclear family. Not just a mom and and a dad and two and a half kids and a dog. That's not what we're talking about. A house at this time included grandmas and grandpas and moms and dads and all the different kids. But it also included something else, which was the servants. So when he talks about this idea of house, we've got to expand our understanding of it to be able to grasp what he's trying to do here. Now, the thing he's going to build on is he's going to grab an ancient concept, which was, at that particular time, an architect was deemed greater than the building. So, in other words, if I look up at the Sistine Chapel, I realize that while those beautiful pictures are amazing, Michelangelo is more amazing. He's going to say to him then, the builder, the one who is the one who builds this all, is greater than just the person in the house. Look at verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Now we get glory, we do. Let me explain why. This summer, um, the Olympics is like my favorite time of year, mainly because it's the only time anybody cares about track and field. Other than that, it's kind of on par with bowling, if you know what I'm talking about. But we understand glory in this standpoint. We look on that stand and we see the most glorious one is the one with the gold medal around his or her neck. The next most glorious is the one with silver around their neck. The next most glorious one is the one with bronze around their neck. And then there's also the ones that receive glory because they fall apart but still finish at the end of it. There's this this idea of glory. Now, the idea that he's going to, though, get across to the Jewish people would have been all the way back in the Old Testament in this idea of glory in reference to Moses. If you remember right, reading the Old Testament, right, Moses would go in and meet with God, and when he would come out, what would happen? His face would what? Shine. Now, what he's trying to get to is this two types of different glories, Moses got any type of shine like the moon does from the sun from God. Jesus radiates glory in and of himself. He's saying there's just two distinct realities here. And he kind of gives an astonishing reason where he says Jesus is the builder of the house and Moses is just part of the house. In other words, Jesus is to the people of God as a builder is to a house Moses is to the people of God as just another man amongst all the people. He's just part of the house. He's he's trying to draw these apart. Jesus, in fact, we're going to get to verse 4, 
is Moses' builder. The idea is that guy that you reference, this Moses who is faithful, Jesus not only brought him into the house, but he made him. Now this is important for us to grasp. At the end of the day, the significance between me and Jesus is often differentiated between not only that he brought me into this house, made me a part of the people of God, but he made me. Now let me give you a little illustration. Imagine for just a little bit, you had the presidents of of the United States all sitting around for all the different eras, and as they're sitting there, Jesus is also there, and they're arguing about who's the greatest. So George Washington steps up first, and he says, listen, fellas, I think I'm the greatest, because I kind of was the father of the nation, I'm the one that won the victory, I just think I'm the greatest. Thomas Jefferson comes along, and he says, well, no, 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 I did write the Declaration of Independence. I am the one that framed this whole different thing. I think I'm the greatest. To which finally Abe with his, you know, hat stands up and he goes, well, four score. And he stands up in front of all of them and he says, well, you know, you all messed it up with the whole slavery thing. I'm the one that fixed it. And I kept our nation together. I'm greatest. There was some arguing going on. I'm sure Nixon had some things to say and different guys arguing about who was the greatest. And finally they look over at Jesus, quietly sitting in the corner and they say, What about you? To which Jesus said, I made you. I formed this nation. I'm the greatest. He's wanting the people just to get at the core of this, that there is a huge distinction between Jesus and Moses in that kind of way. And he says to them, I want you to let this sink in. I want you to understand this. In verse four, you can see this drawn out more. Look look what he says in here, verse four. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Verse 3, Jesus made the house. Verse 4, God is the one who's maker of all things. That means at the end of the day, it's a, a syllogism. He's trying to build out this idea where the Son of God, Jesus, is God, and that's how great he is. Why don't you consider that? The one who spoke everything into existence. Consider Jesus. He's our apostle. He's our high priest. He's the one who brought us out with a heavenly calling and included us into this family. He's the one that created you. He is the one. Consider him. That's who you're supposed to consider. Now look at verse five. Not only is it a proof of his authority from that standpoint, but I think he's gonna include in another one in verse five, which is this idea of seeing the person of Moses versus the person of Jesus. Moses, he's going to say in verse 5, starting off, is a servant, and Jesus is the son. Look down at verse 5. Read with me. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Now, these words that are describing Moses that he's building in here as a servant is pretty rare. He's not just talking about any servant, but he would be the head servant of the house. He was the servant that was most connected to the, to the king like a squire is to the king. He does have a reverential place. And so in other words, the writer of Hebrews is not trying to say that Moses is some loser and he's off in the corner. His point being is that sure, he's to be revered. In fact, uh, I think it's like five different times he is called the servant of the Lord in all, in all of the Old Testament. He's known most for his faithfulness. That's the point of verse 2. 
In Deuteronomy 35 through, through uh, uh, 40, or Exodus 35 through 40, excuse me, I think it's like 22 different times he talks about him being a servant that's just faithful. He's faithful that one that's going to testify, though, look down at verse 5, his greatest faithfulness was to the things that were to be spoken later. It wasn't so much all the stuff he did. In fact, it was just alluding to the fact that something is coming later than him that is going to be greater. When you get to the Jesus Christ, we, all the time he proclaimed, when he said, I am God's son, he was literally saying, I am the fulfillment of everything that Moses ever talked about. All of the law, all of the Levitical system, all of the different sacrifices, the ceremonies, the priesthood, the tabernacle, all of those were a testimony to me. And that's why later on we're going to see that this is the idea of what was spoken about later. He is the fulfillment. Moses was just the hors d'oeuvre. Jesus is what was supposed to come, the one that was greater than Moses would ever be. In John 5, Jesus talks about this idea that if you have believed in Moses, you would believe in me. Why? Because he wrote of me, he said. I'm the one you've been waiting for is what he's talking about. After Jesus' resurrection, right, in Luke, he's walking with the disciples and it said, then he began to open the scriptures for them from Moses through all the prophets explaining who he really was in light of them. I am the fulfillment of it all. These things spoken later is that Moses was just a servant, but Jesus was the son that was promised. The servant doesn't own anything. He's not lord over anything. He's just the servant. But then verse six, look down there. Christ is faithful over God's house, he says, as a son. Moses was faithful, but Jesus made the house. Moses was a servant, but Jesus is a son, and the son was faithful. And let me just write down, I'm just going to read these to you, what I kind of wrote this week. He faithfully fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy. He faithfully and joyfully became incarnate, perfectly becoming a human in body, mind, and emotions. He faithfully submitted all of who he was, his power, his knowledge to the will of the Father. He faithfully underwent temptation and suffered. He faithfully yielded his hands to the nails. He faithfully went to Gethsemane. He faithfully became sin for us after wave after wave was poured out on him. He faithfully became the curse for his house. And of course, he faithfully died for us. You want to compare faithfulness? The writer of Hebrews says, consider Jesus. He was the sent one, the apostle. He was the high priest that has now come to pave the way. And by comparison to Moses, Jesus far exceeds him. He is infinitely supreme. I hope you've stayed with me because this is where the punch is going to land. Now listen. He's laying all of that out and building out this high concept of who Jesus is but the striking reality of verse 6 that's meant to hit us like a ton of bricks is he says, Jesus was faithful over God's house as a son. But look at this. And we are his house. Every one of you in here that knows Jesus Christ, he wants you to get that you are a part of the house. In other words, he puts you on par with Moses and says, you're a man or a woman. You're human just like Moses was. You're a part of this people of God. 
In other words, in this story that we talked about last week that has been being written, is he wrote Moses into it. Moses played an incredible part. Jesus is the writer of the story. He came and he demonstrated who God was. But listen to me, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a part of the story. You're a part of this amazing thing that God is doing. This thing that began way back in Genesis 1, in the beginning, he then launched off and created an entire world to know him and love him and follow him. And all the way to Revelation in which finally humanity is going to enjoy God as he intended, you're part of it. For those of you in here, in fact, it says your name is written into the Lamb's book of life. As I was praying with the dude that has cancer, we're sitting there and And I prayed over him, Father, thank you for writing his name into the Lamb's book of life. I felt as he just started to grip my hand, even though he was dead tired from all the treatments he was going through. We got done. He looked up at me. And he says, I am in that book, aren't I? I said, you are in that book, not just temporarily, but forever. In the midst of people going through all the different things that we go through in these different points, he's solidifying this idea that I don't care what you go through. I don't care if it's cancer. I don't care if it's a tragic death. I don't care if it's whatever's going on in this world. The most important thing is that you are a part of the people of God. That is the sine qua non. That is the apex of all of life. He just wants you to consider this. Meditate on it. Think about it. Spend time in it. Be diligent with it. Just consider this. Now he's going to get into it though and he's going to understand that while there's a privilege, there's also a responsibility. Notice the if. He throws an if at us that kind of catches us off guard. He says, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. It's one of the most tragic words in all of Hebrews. As a former youth pastor, I watched several kids come up through church Follow Jesus, and I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, I am shepherding the next Carrie, or I'm shepherding the next Spurgeon, only to find out years later they had walked away from Jesus. The epitome of the faith, or the reason that I know I'm in the faith, is not because I've walked an aisle, is not because I've said a prayer. The way that I know that I'm in the faith is I won't quit. That does not mean we won't have moments that are low. There are times in which I've sat and I've wrestled with God at the depths of my heart. But the reality of you knowing of whether you're a believer or not is that you won't quit. You've laid hold of the pearl of great price and the treasure in the field. You've seen Jesus for who he is. And anything else that this world has to offer is absolutely peanuts in comparison to Jesus. He's saying, look at Jesus. When you start to grasp how amazing he is, how beautiful he is, how other he is, how distinct he is, you will want nothing else and you will cling to him in the midst of any trial that comes along. 
That's what I mean. I don't care what you're going through right now. I love that the Bible doesn't say, work harder. That's what you need to do. Go do bigger things for Jesus. It just says, consider Jesus. Just consider him. Think about him. That's why we have quiet times. We don't have quiet times because we're bored in the morning. Let me tell you something. If quiet times were just for me to get up, I don't know, have a verse a day so I can keep the devil away, I'll stay in bed. But if I know when I wake up, I get to go experience Jesus, watch out. I get to go be with him and live with him. See, for those of you in here that don't know Jesus, that's what you're missing. See, I don't, don't want to just sell you a get-out-of-hell-free card. I feel like we do that way too often. Hell is real, and I don't deny it. But I'm not here to tell you that you can get out of hell free. I'm telling you that you can know the God of the universe because Jesus is the apostle, the sent one that came and spoke for God, and the bridge builder that now can unite humanity with God. And you can be a part of the people of God in which Jesus says in John, nothing will snatch you out of my Father's hand. That's how much he loves you, Romans 8. Neither height nor depth, no any other created thing will be able to separate you from the love of Jesus. Don't come to him just not to go to hell. I feel like there's so many people that are going to stand before God one day and say, I don't know you. You just bought hell insurance. That's all you bought. We don't know each other. The privilege of the gospel of Jesus is that we get to know the God of the universe. We get written into the story And those two words that he throws in here that are so important, that idea of confidence and boasting, is that then we get to talk about it. This week, or last week on the plane, I was was flying, and I don't know why it is, but God always allows me to run into unique people on the plane. I sat next to one of the zookeepers from the Omaha Zoo. I said, man, I've never met a zookeeper before. He looked back at me and said, well, I've never met a pastor before. (laughs) I go, well, there we go. We're having a unique time. We started talking, and all of a sudden, he just stopped, and he looked at me. And he goes, so why do you believe what you believe? (laughs) Shut up, seriously? I'm like, did he really just ask that? I spin in my chair. I didn't try to act that too excited. And the first thing that came to my mind is I just started to tell him the story. I said, isn't it incredible that we don't have a clue fully how this world was created other than the Bible says God spoke it. He spoke it into existence and it made this incredible world. I go, dude, you get to play with animals that are the freakiest animals ever. He goes, well, I'm more shoveled poo than anything else. I go, well, still a poo of animals that are just like incredible. I go, did you know God crafted each and every one of them? And the the idea was is that we might now look at those animals and just go, no way, God. And he was almost like he was leading me along. He goes, well, then what happened? Great question. (laughs) I began to just unpack the reality of the fall. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. This is like perfect evangelism right now. I'm like, okay, God. I began to unpack the idea of the fall and how screwed up the world is. And he goes, well, okay, so great. So what, what do you think the Bible says is the solution? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> and I just set him before Jesus. 
this pioneer of salvation, this only way to the Father. We rambled back and forth, and he had a lot of questions for me in regards to it. And I go, you didn't ask one question, but there's a question about how it all ends. He goes, well, how does it? I said, there's no doubt that at the end of it, people that don't know Jesus are gonna find the horror of the reality of hell. But I said, what I want you to focus on is this, is that at the end of the day, those that know him will spend an eternity with the glorious Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever had those moments where I'm like, I was ready to do an altar call on the whole plane. <laughs> every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around, nobody caring about your neighbor. Do you want to come to know Jesus right now? Just raise your hand, raise your hand. I mean, I was, I was so ready. I go, what do you think? He goes, well, that's really nice for you. But you know what? For one moment on a plane with a zookeeper, I got to brag about Jesus. So it doesn't matter what's going on in my life. It doesn't matter if I'm at my lowest moments, I can brag about Jesus. It doesn't matter if I'm at my highest moments in my life. I can brag about Jesus. But if you don't know Jesus today, I want you to hear this. You'll miss out on it all. And even in here, and this is where I want to challenge those of us that are believers. We may not revere Moses, but I know in this room, because I know you're like me, there's a lot of things that we place over Jesus. And then we wonder why our walk with Jesus is so dead. It's because when I focus on this and I focus on that and I focus here and I go here and I consider this and I consider all these different things and in the middle of it, I don't consider Jesus, I am going to naturally begin to just slowly wither. If today, right now, you're in this room and you're like, you know what, I just am dead. I feel like that, that, that my walk with Jesus is just stale and numb even. I'm gonna give you two words. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. If you need prayer right now, because even for you, you may not even want to want to consider Jesus. You can come up to the front and there'll be people that'll pray for you. Maybe there's some of you in here that have been considering Jesus, but you haven't even really thought about baptism. You know, that we, we may not baptize you today, but we'd love to talk with you about what does that mean. If somebody in here heard just for the first time that, wow, I need to consider Jesus for the first time, we would love to talk to you. But two words, two words, consider Jesus. You're going to say it with me, ready? Consider Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for today. Thanks for your word. Father, I pray that you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, just begin to show us what a thrill it is as followers of Jesus to be a part of your story. God, would your spirit even just right now convict all of us in this room, those of us that are stale, that are numb to you right now, would we not leave today? Please, I beg you, would you do that right now? Would everyone in this room leave with a thrill and an expectation that if they consider you, Father, oh, that you will bring life even in the midst of some of the darkest moments? 
Spirit, demonstrate yourself real, please, right now. In your precious name we pray. Amen.